that is yet. But the numbers here say Sinkadu. It seems to be some ancient form of geographic location. Latitude, longitude. It doesn't make sense though. The numbers, they seem to be backwards or something. It's upside down. The world? Welcome to the Mad Max Minute presents Waterworld H2O Minutes at a Time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minutes 133 and 134, which begin with the Mariner approaching the makeshift atoll on a jet ski, and end with Helen watching the Mariner disappear into the night. At the tail end of last week, we had to stop because the clip ended and we didn't get to hear the Mariner's awesome one-liner. As he rides up on the jet ski, he looks at Helen and he says, I'm going after Enola. It's a very fitting final line to this little journey that he's been on of, I'm not going after her, you can tell her lies, I don't care, to figuring out the secrets on how to make this all work, to figuring out that he cares, to his awesome taking over the jet skis. This is a very nice cap on these few minutes. The Mariner doesn't ride up on the jet ski in the book. He is still in the water. He swims over to the makeshift atoll. People on the atoll help him up out of the water. He sheathes his knife, and he goes up to Helen. The book describes his face as looking very savage, but very human. And Helen says, you came back, she said, her face risking a smile. I'm going after the child, he said simply. I think I like the version in the movie here better. I do too. It's simpler. I know we don't get... The atollers helping him up out of the water, showing the least bit of gratitude for him saving them. No, it seems fitting that they don't have an opportunity to show him that gratitude. Yeah, I don't want the atollers to suddenly start treating him well because the atollers are the worst and I want them to be left behind. Yes, and these two minutes just help reinforce that. Mm -hmm. Because even as the mariner is preparing to make this assault on the smokers. They are there in the background with their pithy little comments from the peanut gallery. Right, just disagreeing. I will say that they seem to be a little bit less actively distrustful and hateful towards him. It seems more now about, I'm just going to complain about whatever you say, Mm -hmm. rather than, you are bad, I want to kill you. So I guess they're softening a little bit? I'm not sure. As Helen and Gregor are helping the Mariner get ready for his assault, Gregor tries to lighten the mood. He waddles over to the Mariner. He says, here, you know, for a hideous freak, you're okay. And the Mariner looks at him like, um, excuse me? And Gregor's (laughs) like, it was a joke. I am not sure how I feel about this. I am all for moments of levity in serious movies. Yeah, great. I love it. But I don't know. It didn't land that great for me. I have failed at delivering jokes before many, many times, more than I can count. (laughs) So I can sympathize with Gregor here. While his intentions were good, I'm sure, poking at the Mariner like this, it's very thin ice. The Mariner has maybe not been hunted all of his life, but he's certainly been hunted over the course of this movie because people have seen him as... A hideous freak. Right. So it's a bit of a sore spot. 
and that might not do well being poked at. Yeah, maybe if it had been a little bit more gentle. I think the Mariner didn't react enough. The Mariner himself is so humorless to begin with. It's like trying to tell a joke at a funeral when you don't know the family at the funeral. Right. Like you wouldn't. Exactly. Or at least a smart person wouldn't. Uh, yeah. Gregor probably sees the Mariner based on his relationship with Helen and believes that there is some sort of correlating familiarity that Helen and the Mariner spent a lot of time together and Gregor and Helen spent a lot of time together. So he sees him as one of her friends. That means that he must be one of his friends as well. That sort of situation. We know from personal experience, doesn't always work. No. Just because you're friends with that person over there and that person over there doesn't mean those two people are going to like each other at all. So those are big assumptions on Gregor's part. It doesn't really go well. It just doesn't land. I appreciate that he's trying to keep things light. It just doesn't land. And this moment could have been in the movie and just done better. The joke should have been a little bit less harsh. Maybe not calling him a hideous freak. Those are both really harsh words. Yeah. So maybe go a little bit more gentle and more of a reaction from the Mariner. I think I would have liked your reaction like, are you kidding me? Did you really just say that? And then Gregor could be like, yeah, yeah, I'm just kidding. <clears throat> the joke could have been there successfully, just not as it was. Mm -hmm. The Mariner is very quick to change the subject. He doesn't want to continue this line of thought joking about him being a hideous freak, he nods to the scrap of paper that Gregor has with a nose tattoo on it and asks, do you know what that is yet? And Gregor says, the numbers, yes, I think so. It's some sort of ancient form of geographic location, latitude, longitude. It doesn't make sense, though. The numbers seem to be backwards or something. Which reminds me of when we were originally talking about the tattoo that the numbers are switched around in some way. And I'm starting to think that that was done on purpose. That if you switch things around on the map, the numbers as they appear on the tattoo would probably be correct. There's a lot of room for the intention of the tattooer mm -hmm. and who the tattooer intended to see the map. Did they intend Enola? to be able to read the map in a mirror so that she could someday bring people back? Did the tattooer intend on Nola reaching people who have absolutely no context for what this map is? We don't know what the tattooer intended. I can only assume that the people who wrote the tattoo knew, as the Mariner does now, that the world has been flipped upside down. So in order for the latitude and longitude lines to work, you would have to adjust them to this now reversed world. So when people in the real world look at this and look at these numbers and say, oh, well, these numbers are all flipped around and wrong, in the context of the world here, perhaps it makes a bit more sense. It's been so long since we talked about the specifics of this tattoo, I don't necessarily want to get into it, but what I do want to focus on is the Mariner sharing the information with Gregor that the world is upside down, and as Gregor elaborates on, he asks, the poles have been reversed? And the Mariner says, more or less, yes. The Mariner is taking some big leaps. We know from the novelization that the Mariner just realized that the world is upside down. But the way it's presented in the Ulysses cut, 
it kind of seems like he always knew that. We did not get a moment where he learned that. Therefore, he already had that information, mm -hmm. which would kind of make sense because if he's been diving down to cities and mapping them, it would make sense that he would have had that realization at some time in the past. We just don't get to see it. But the whole idea of the poles reversing seems a little above the Mariner's knowledge level. Hmm. In order for the Mariner to come to the conclusion that the poles are reversed, he would have had to find a compass and then use that compass lined up against a map to say, okay, this is where it's pointing north. These are the cities that I'm finding. I'm marking them on the map. So if he's looking at the map and north is south and south is north, of course, he would have to spin it around to get these cities to line up. And so I had to look up the idea that is called geomagnetic reversal. Okay. It is a change in a planet's magnetic field such that the positions of magnetic north and magnetic south are interchanged, not to be confused with geographic north and geographic south, which are, of course, they're physical. They don't have to do with the magnetic fields necessarily. We're talking about just that energy field around the Earth. The Earth's field has actually alternated between periods of normal polarity like we have now and reverse polarity, which of course is the opposite. And these periods are called crons. There have been approximately 183 reversals over the last 83 million years, on average about every 450,000 years. The latest being the Bruns Matuyama reversal, which occurred 780,000 years ago with wildly varying estimates on how quickly it happened. Although variable, the duration of a full reversal is typically between 2,000 and 12,000 years. So it is not a quick process, it is not a common process, but it is something that has happened in the past and will likely happen again in the future. So in Waterworld, the poles reversing, is that part of what happened to the world? I'm willing to say yes, yeah. because part of geomagnetic reversal involves things moving. And when you get these magnetic poles moving around, that can weaken the magnetic field overall, allowing more cosmic radiation to get in. Ah, and warming things up even faster than they are in our world in our day. Exactly. So if you've got a weakened magnetic field around the Earth, as it insinuates at the beginning of the movie more greenhouse gases heating up the earth. If you've got all of these things working together, it makes sense that all of the ice caps would melt because you've got internal heat, you've got external heat. It's not good situation. I do appreciate a little bit of this world building or world deconstructing in this case <laughs> <laughs> to kind of let us know what happened. Yeah. Equally interesting is how in the world that we live in now, we know the sun rises in the east and sets in the west. But if you reverse the poles and suddenly your reference for north is south and vice versa, then you got to flip it 180 degrees. The sun is now rising in the west and setting in the east. It's not that the world has stopped rotating its current direction and spun around the opposite way. It's just that your point of reference on the compass rose has relabeled which direction the sun is coming from. Right. I watched a quick little video about what would happen if the Earth were to suddenly start spinning the opposite direction. Oh, yeah. And probably the most interesting detail is that the world's deserts and rainforests would be changed, 
because of the altering of wind and water patterns. The Sahara Desert in the north of Africa and the desert on the Arabian Peninsula would essentially get enough water to start blooming, and new deserts would form in South America. The rainforest in Brazil would start to dry up. There'd be new deserts down along the Andes. But in reality, it would probably be a net positive because the huge deserts in the North Africa and the Arabian Peninsula are such a large swath of land that the plants growing there would actually help bring the temperature of the earth down. Pretty sure I've seen that video. It sounds super duper familiar. But I don't believe we're in a situation in this movie where the earth is spinning the opposite direction. No, I think it's more about what we call east and west, Mm -hmm. which is our society's designation for that way versus that way versus that way versus that way. We say, okay, magnets point towards this point, we're going to call that north. And then 90 degrees relative to that, we're going to call that east. And then another 90, we're going to call that south. And Mm -hmm. another 90, we're going to call that west. It just means that earlier in this movie, when we were watching them sailing against a setting sun, we assumed, okay, well, that's the sun setting in the west, so they must be heading north, when, according to them, because of their compasses, they were technically heading south. Yes. So I think we would just have to reorient what we call things. We can choose two ways. We can now say, okay... North is south and east is west. We're going to switch those two or just get used to what it means when you say north. Which is, I believe, what they've done in this society because people are growing up with all of these old labels. This compass points north. Okay, well, that's what north means now. Yeah. To us, it means south, but to them, they've only known it as north. And so it doesn't seem weird to them. Honestly, I think either choice would be just horrific for our society. It's so ingrained in us what North, South, East, and West is. It's the same thing as the idea of getting the Americans to switch from the imperial system of measurement to the metric system of measurement. It's so hard because it is ingrained in us what an inch is, what a foot is, what a Fahrenheit degree is. We have those ideas in our head of what it means. And if you ask us, okay, a degree Celsius, like, I have no idea how that compares to Fahrenheit. You tell me the degrees in Celsius, I don't know what that means. And you have to start people young. You have to teach it in school to either think both ways or switch completely over to the metric. And that's really, really hard. Yeah. If the poles were to reverse tomorrow, imagine how crazy it would be because North Dakota would be south of South Dakota. Mm Mm-hmm. To say nothing of the Carolinas. Yeah. It's kind of hard to think about because those ideas, those concepts are so ingrained. The Mariner says that he's been mapping the cities below. The world wasn't created in a deluge. It was covered by it. And there's an atoll man in the background that yells out that that's blasphemy. Helen pipes up in an instance of absolutely terrible ADR because you can't see her mouth moving or anything like that. No, you can't. But she says, no, it's true. I've seen it with my own eyes. There's land right under our keel. None of it's dry. And it's at that point where the mariner pipes up and says, some is, which surprises Helen. But I love how you've got people like the Atollers who have always lived on Waterworld. They've never not lived on Waterworld. And so the idea that there's anything under the water relating to a previous world is blasphemy to them. Reminds me of way back in the day when the debate was, is the world flat versus round? I think more 
is the world the center of our solar system or not? This question of physics and reality, and in this case, geography, is being translated into a question of religion. And I have no problem ingraining religion in physics. My own personal views on religion hinge heavily on physics and things that are real in science. And I do believe that they can work together. But they have to have a reason to work together. You can't just say that the world is water and that's just it. And that's the way that a deity wants it to be. And anything different is blasphemy. There's no basis for that. What there is basis for is that there is something underneath the water. Mm -hmm. That makes sense. So it drives me nuts when people base religious beliefs on scientific subjects that have no basis in science. So going back to Helen's reaction to the Mariner saying some is, her eyes have gone wide, she's staring at him, and the Mariner says to her, Enola's been there, I know that now, I saw what she drew. And it goes back to what we talked about last week with him seeing what she drew, instead of just looking at the drawings. Yeah, the vocabulary there is very important. He's now in the same place that Helen and Gregor have been for years. They have been seeing her drawing these things. They don't know what they are, trees and animals, for years. And it has driven their belief in dry land. Mm -hmm. Gregor never faltered, but Helen did. She had evidence presented to her that was earth-shattering. But the evidence presented to her did not exclude the possibility of dry land. Right. Just because there are cities under the water and that now have been covered by water doesn't mean it was all covered by water. Yeah, they swam past a mountain and you could see the ground rising. Mm-hmm. And it would therefore lead you to believe that if a mountain can rise up from the bottom, that there are mountains that could rise high enough to get out of the water. Yeah. Gregor hears this and laughing to himself, saying that's why he's going after Enola to find dry land. And the Mariner very quickly says, I don't care about dry land. He's going to save Enola, not because Enola is the only hope they have to find dry land. Now, I got the vibe from Gregor that he's poking fun again, that he's trying to tell a joke. And the Mariner doesn't see it as a joke. He doesn't respond as if it were a joke. Mm -hmm. He responds as if it were an accusation. I believe it's Gregor just straight up stating it as a fact. Like, oh, I've realized what his motivations are. I get it now. He's come back after leaving because he wants to find dry land just like the rest of us. Because why wouldn't he want to find dry land? We all want to find dry land. So why wouldn't he want to find dry land? Gregor is smart enough to know that the mariner who is a fish man would have no interest in dry land. Yeah, I don't have as much faith in Gregor being smart enough. <laughs> like you are. Okay. <laughs> I think Gregor's making a lot of leaps in logic that who would not want to find dry land? Okay. There is, of course, an atoller naysayer saying that this idea is ridiculous going after the smokers. He doesn't even know which direction they came from. And the mariner stands up. And that is just setting him up for doing something cool. He pulls the Bic lighter, which he got at the very beginning of the movie, out of his belt. Yep. And he lights a Molotov cocktail that he's been preparing and he tosses it out onto the water, and the Molotov hits one of the jet skis, specifically Bones' jet ski. And I always have to chuckle at this scene because you can very clearly see the bracket that is holding up the jet ski in the water as that <laughs> firebomb explodes. <laughs> but it lights a trail of oil off into the night. And the Mariner doesn't even have to say to the Atoller, there's my direction. It just is. 
This is a really cool move. He didn't even say anything. He just showed them. Mm-hmm. Look how clever I am. I know exactly how I'm going to find my way. And here it is. It's also visually impressive. And so the Mariner jumps onto Chester's jet ski and he looks over at Helen and he says, if she's alive, I'll bring her back to you. And then he throttles the jet ski and rides away. There is an atoll woman in the background who tells Helen to forget about him. If he brings her back, they'll kill us all. Assuming that the Mariner would grab Enola and then lead a trail of smokers back to the atoll, which is a legitimate concern. It is. What I found interesting about this statement from random atoll woman is that it felt more inclusive of Helen than the atollers have behaved in the past. Mm -hmm. So I want to duck back into the book. As she stood watching him getting smaller and smaller, her heart pounding with hope, Helen could only wince at the remarks of the atollers around her. One woman was saying, we're wasting valuable time here. The smokers will be back. We need to get moving. A man said, she's right. That freak will only make them more vengeful. Another atoll man touched her shoulder. Forget about that, Muto. There was just enough sexual suggestiveness in his tone and in his bad, raw, fishy breath to enrage her. She brushed the hand off as if it were seagull droppings. Then she slapped him, hard. The sound echoed across the tiny lagoon. Standing among them, she said, So what, run away again? We've barely started over and you're ready to start again? Create another atoll? New, new oasis? Sooner or later, you have to realize that a place like this can never be our home. We can't live like this anymore. She pushed through them and came face to face with the Enforcer and old Gregor. The Enforcer was frowning, but Gregor had a wicked, secret grin. The others may be cowards, the Enforcer said, but they're right. He's on a suicide run. I'm going after him. It's suicide for you, too. She shook her head helplessly. I don't care. I can't. Can't run away again. And I just can't stay behind waiting. I like that she made it not about her relationship with the Mariner, which that one atoll guy wanted to make it about their relationship. Mm -hmm. And she didn't take that bait. She doesn't want to go after him because she wants to make sure he's safe or to make sure that he comes back to her. It's because she realizes that they can't keep living this way. Atoll living is not living, and they need something more. Mm -hmm. She's doing it for herself and for Enola and even for them. It's one of the things I really like about Helen in the books. And Helen in the movie is similar enough (laughs) to Helen in the books, (laughs) where Helen is looking at the situation saying, I don't want him to have to bear all of this burden on his own. There has to be something that I can do to help him. And I really appreciate that about Helen. It's one of her great qualities. Yeah, I agree. That's going to wrap things for this week. Come back next time. Gregor will hint at how they can help the Mariner. Nord and the Doctor will try and decipher Enola's tattoo. And the Mariner will find his way to the Ds. The Mad Max Minute podcast is a fan project by Rick and Julia Ingham. Waterworld was written by Peter Rader and David Tui, Directed by Kevin Reynolds. And presented by Universal Pictures. Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute. And like us on Facebook by searching MadMaxMinute and join our Facebook listener group, MadMaxMinute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit Patreon.com slash MadMaxMin. Thank you for joining us for Waterworld Episode 67. We'll see you next time.